0: Psalm 121, I'm not sure if any of you have the same edition of the Bible that I'm using up here, but in my Bible it is page 516, if that helps anyone, that will be good. This is God's Word. A song of ascents. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Some of you probably have either a card or a calendar or maybe a digital version of one of those things with a portion of Psalm 121 on it. If you don't have one up in your kitchen right now, ladies, maybe someone's going to give one to you after this sermon. Those are common uh, products. I lift up my eyes to the hills. And there's a, a sort of inspiring quality to the idea of lifting one's up, eyes up to the hills. I mean, mountains or an incredible inspiration. You have them in abundance and close by here. Uh, I had my first chance to see Yosemite National Park uh, about a year ago or so, and yeah, it's, it's quite a thing to lift up your eyes to the hills. It makes you feel like maybe life is worth living. It's inspiring. It's wonderful. And many people come to Psalm 121, and they think, wow, this is inspiring. It's great. Lift up your eyes to the hills. But I think in order to understand this psalm, it would be helpful to have a slightly different idea in our minds about the hills. I want to tell you about a time I lifted my eyes to the hills. This was some years ago. I was a a young man, and uh, a friend of mine and I and a few others were hiking, and we went to Mount Robson. Mount Robson is Canada's tallest rocky mountain. Uh, It's up in kind of northern B.C. on the border with Alberta near Jasper National Park. Beautiful mountain, very big. We did not climb it or anything, but we did hike up to a lake that's fed by a glacier. It's a beautiful place. It was quite a hike, longest hike I've ever done. And the idea was you hike in for a day, you park, you build your tent, you set up your tent and all that, and then you leave all your gear and you can go hiking all around for a few days and then you can hike out again, but you don't have to keep your heavy pack on. But if you're carrying a week's worth of stuff, I mean, it's maybe 50 or 60 pounds on your back, and it was a a hard hike. It was kind of uphill pretty, pretty seriously. And you know, I am not, I know I look like I'm a real athlete, but I'm a pastor. And uh, even before I was a pastor, I was well suited for that job. And uh, this was hard for me. And I was hiking and hiking and hiking, and there was miles to go. And every time I lifted my eyes, what was there? Hills. Right? And that's, I think, the kind of idea you should have when you come to this psalm. It's not you lift up your eyes from your sink to see a calendar with beautiful mountains and remember that life is worth living, dishes are worth washing, or whatever it might be. It's the idea that you're on a pilgrimage. As people were often in ancient Israel, uh, for whom these psalms were composed, most likely, there were... Uh, miles to go in this pilgrimage, to get to God's house in Jerusalem, to make it home, to make it to the place where one could dwell in God's presence. And the whole series of Ascent Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 are a wonderful little um, soundtrack for the Christian life, which starts in the pain of Psalm 120, of not being at home in this world and ends in the great joy of Psalm 134, standing in God's sight, blessing and being blessed. And along the way, there's a need for what we might call roadside assistance. And that's really what the message of Psalm 121 is. It's roadside assistance for the Christian life. And, you know, God is very good. He doesn't tell us at the start one thing, and then later give us the fine print. And you'll notice this about Jesus and his ministry in the Gospels. He doesn't go to people and say, oh yeah, come be a Christian. You know, it's great to be a Christian. You get to go to church. There's all these nice people. There's free food at potlucks. There's, you know, there's all these benefits. You get all the, you know, people have nice families. I mean, it's great. And then a little asterisk, like in an ad, where they don't tell you all the side effects of some drug or something like that. And then years later, you find out that you missed the fine print. That's not how Jesus operates. He says, follow me, pick up your cross, follow me, come and die. Right? He, he says it up front. And, and God actually does that here too in Psalm 121, because this is near the beginning of the Ascent Psalms, and this is not a song about how easy everything's going to be, it's a song about how high the hills are. And that's very good. God's very kind. He doesn't kid around. He says, look, there's mountains to cross. And these mountains are problems for pilgrims, but the message of the psalm is that you'll have God's help to cross the mountains. You'll, got, you'll have God's roadside assistance to get you to s- your journey's end safely. Now, the psalm itself uh, gives us this message by showing us first the God who protects his people. That's the, uh, the first thing we see. The question is, from where does my help come? Uh, probably we could preach a whole sermon just on that question. of all the, all the places people look for, for help, all the things people turn to, the crazy places people look, thinking they, maybe they'll get a solution here or here or here or there. But the answer comes directly. We're not left wondering. My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. Uh, the Hebrew word translated the Lord in your Bible with all capital letters. Maybe you know this. Maybe, maybe it's a new thing uh, for you. Those capital letters mean it's God's personal name being translated. It's, it's, really the, it's really not a name that means Lord. It means Yahweh. I mean, my name doesn't mean something. It means Calvin. <laughs> if you look up what it means, you'll get some rather sad things like bald But it doesn't mean bald. When people call me Calvin, they just mean Calvin. That's all they mean, right? If they call me pastor, then they mean my job. And if we call God Lord, we mean kind of his job. If we call him Yahweh, we're calling him by his name. And he told us that the meaning of his name, if you remember what God told Moses in Exodus 3 at the bush, he said my name means that I am. I am what I am. And when God gives us his personal name to use, he's telling us, go ahead and call me by my name and remember that I don't have a name the way you have a name where you can look at me and think about what I'm like and just like Adam named the animals and gave them names that fit what they were. you know, No one can do that to God. God just is. He is what he is. He's beyond any ability to give him a name that would slot him in a spot in our minds and give him a proper definition or anything like that. He's too big for that. He is what he is. You can't compare him to anybody, you can't limit him, you can't draw a line around him or, or, or any, any such thing. He is what he is. The, the, the person who is your help is, to put it a little philosophically, ultimate reality. He's everything. Uh, you don't merely have one of those uh, fun gods from ancient Greek or Roman mythology who have like lightning bolts at their disposal or something. You have the God who is the reason there is anything he's your helper. The God who is able to say that he's like a fire that doesn't need to burn up a bush in order to keep firing. He can just burn and burn and burn. No fuel needed because he's a God who needs nothing from anybody and is the one whom everything and everyone needs. In him we live and move and have our being, Paul says, not only in the sense that all people in the world live and move and have their being in him because we're all his creatures, but specifically we can say as Christians that that God in in whom all people live and move and have their being, he is our helper, not only by the reality of creation but by the blessing of a covenant promise. He's your helper. The other thing about God is that he's the maker of heaven and earth. So he's, he is what he is. He's this ultimate being who needs nothing and gives to all things what they are and have. And he's the one who made heaven and earth. And the thing to understand here is that he's not a manager of a department. I was on the phone a week or two ago, as I, I wonder if many people were over the holidays with a little extra time to take care of some household <laughs> chores. I was on the phone to the internet people. And, you know, my bill had been off, and I'd known about it for months, and I needed to change it, and I just hadn't had time. And I finally got around to asking, you know, why is my bill different than I think it should be? And we had quite a long conversation. I was on the phone for quite a long time, and on speakerphone, and on hold, and that sort of thing. But, you know, the experience is, oh, I need to get you to the other department, right? That's what you don't want to hear. And you know, actually, for most people in the world, in the history of the world, that's how they think God operates. Right? We have the God for this, and then the God for that. The God for business, and the God for families, and the God for trade, and the God for weather, and the God for politics, and the God for war. And if the God for war is off busy helping some other army, well, hey, sorry, you're going to have to wait on hold until he's back. Right? But the wonderful message of Scripture, from the very beginning, the opening words of Scripture make this point. And if you were someone who was living at the time when Moses wrote these words, you would have caught the point, I think, because you would have known about other religions and how they thought about creation. Because it doesn't say in Genesis 1, in the beginning there was all this random stuff and a bunch of gods fighting over who would get to be in charge. It says in the beginning there wasn't even stuff. God created the stuff And there never was a moment when it was out of someone's control or when it was merely under a certain department manager with a bunch of office politics going on. But that's what maybe we don't understand about false religion. It's really bureaucracy in the skies. That's what it is. It's bad office politics translated into the spiritual realm. And what God gives us here is not bad bureaucracy, but the kind of monarchy we need someone who's in charge of everything at the same time, whose word holds, whether you're talking about Mars or Botswana or the depths of the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean or somewhere more exotic than any of those places. He's the maker of heaven and earth. And wherever your travels take you as a Christian, roadside assistance is available. That's the point here. He's not just the maker of Israel, and he's not just the maker of people... um, uh, who, who come to church, and he's not just the maker of Sundays inside the church building. He's the maker of all of it, and uh, so he's available to help you. And that leads quite naturally to the next thing about God: is that he never sleeps. Um, some of you know that I had trouble sleeping last night. I downed a rather potent cup of coffee at the conference last night, and I have a very fragile constitution. And at three or, uh, or four a.m. this morning, I was meditating on the fact that I never slumber or sleep. And it's a sign of weakness, actually, as a human, not to be able to sleep. It's a problem. Because humans are so weak that it's a sign of strength to be able to go to sleep. It's a sign of strength and health that you can have your needs met easily. Whereas God, it's not like that. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you not only won't slumber because he's in a panic, but he's not the kind of God who needs a break. He's not the kind of God who has needs to be met. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber or sleep. So he's not like the gods that Elijah taunted the Baal worshippers about. Oh, keep crying out to your God. Maybe he's off to the bathroom. You know, maybe he's got some need he's meeting. Um, so cry harder. And you know, even the weakest call for roadside assistance is a call to the God who never slumbers or sleeps, who's always available, who's always able to see the need that his people have. So that's the God who protects us. Then there's the people who are protected. And sometimes this is important to understand. You know, not everybody has roadside assistance. And if you call up a roadside assistance truck or something and you don't have a membership, you know, well they're not obligated to help you, right? So it's important to know who has this protection available to them. And basically what we find in verse 3 is that each individual Christian has this protection. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And, you know, um, we don't all have just one foot, right? That's talking about individual people there. And this is the most amazing thing about being a Christian, is that God is able to deal with us as individuals. Uh, no one else can do that, really. Everybody else, in one way or another, has to treat us as part of a, a group. You know, you're young adults, right? Or seniors, or my family, or people in my church. You know, we just have to deal in these categories because otherwise we would lose our minds. We just can't treat people as individuals in every way. But God's bigger than you and I, and he can. And he knows about your feet. He knows about your needs. He knows about your life. And then on the other hand, he's also the God who deals with the whole of his people at once. Because in verse 4 it says, He is the keeper of Israel. He is the one who keeps Israel. And I mean, what a title. You think about the kind of claim God is making there. Uh, can you imagine if, if you know, one of your pastors were to say that even that they were the keeper of faith church? That would already be quite a, an arrogant thing to say. But imagine saying the keeper of the church at large. I mean, who who would say such a thing? And then recall that probably these psalms reached their final spot in the Psalter, not near the time when they were composed, but during the exile, when there were Israelites all over the place. I mean, some of them were in Babylon, some of them were in uh, Egypt, some of them were in the land, some of them were far from Jerusalem, some of them were near, and these people were singing about a God who keeps Israel as a whole even when there really wasn't much of an Israel to keep in any obvious, visible sense. And that's the kind of God you and I have. He doesn't need the church to be a nice, tame, simple, small little group. He can handle a worldwide church of people all over the place with all different kinds of needs, and he can take care of the whole thing. He's the keeper of Israel. And from that, we should draw strength that he can be the keeper of you personally. What are the threats that we're protected from by God? Well, verse 3 gives us one. He will not let your foot be moved. This is an example of the kind of problem that comes from within the pilgrim, the traveler. You know, Sometimes your own, your own abilities fail. Your foot slips. Uh, you know, some, sometimes it might be a rock slide lands on you. Sometimes it's just that you trip because you're not perfect. And that's true in the Christian life. Sometimes there's external threats that you need to be protected from. But actually the one that this psalm names first is the internal threat of your own, your own faults and failings. Uh, if I recall correctly, it was Augustine who thought that this text was referring to the sin of pride. Pride, the scripture says, go before a fall. Pride goes before a fall, but the Lord won't let your foot be moved. And even your indwelling sin is not an obstacle to the Lord who protects you on your Christian life. You might think it would be, but it's not. The next threat that the Lord's ready to protect you from is all kind of external threat. And this is, I think, the point of verse 5 and 6, or specifically verse 6, where we learn that the sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. And you've got to remember, you know, people, most people today don't, don't read a lot of poetry, right? And people uh, sometimes think, okay, you know, the sun will not strike you and neither will the moon. Well, has anyone been moonburned? You know, it doesn't really happen. So what's, what's the psalm talking about here? But that's partly because we just don't read things that require us to think a little bit about what the imagery involves. And this is a poem. And the person writing it was aware that you weren't getting moonburn. He knew that. But he's trying to say that any kind of threat, any kind of problem, whether it's the sun or the moon, you know, we might say from A to Z... Just the whole gamut, the whole range of threats that might be brought against you, they won't strike you. And they won't strike you in the daytime, and they won't strike you in the nighttime. In other words, any range of external threats is subject to the Lord's control, and as the prophet Isaiah tells us, whatever weapons are formed against you will not prosper. Looking at the other Ascent Psalms, there's a whole bunch of uh, suggestions we might come up with about what these external threats are. Psalm 120 talks about lies being weaponized against God's people. Psalm 123 talks about scorn being wielded against God's people. Psalm 124 talks about the threats of God's enemies against God's people. Psalm 125 talks about the injustice and the mistreatment that God's people often experience on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Psalm 127 talks about weariness, really more of an internal threat, but a kind of mix, because we're weary by the long road, aren't we? Psalm 129 talks about the violence that is often launched against God's people. Psalm 130 talks about the problem of guilt. And, and these are all examples of threats. We could probably find many more. But maybe you're not dealing with any of those that I've just listed, but you know, there are Christians dealing with all, the, all of those. There are Christians today who are in chains for Christ. There are Christians around the world who are the subject of serious violence because of their Christian profession. There are um, places where very serious injustice is perpetrated against people because of their hatred for the Lord Jesus. I mean, this, this happens. Not to mention scorn, uh, lies. I mean, the lies people tell about Christians are amazing sometimes, really incredible. And God says, neither the moon nor the sun will strike you, either by day or by night. The next thing to notice is what exactly God protects. And this is something that verse 7 shows us. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life, your life. Um. The word there—it's a perfectly good translation. I'm not criticizing the translation, but it's one of those words that's hard to translate because it has a meaning that's so basic. It just basically means your your soul, your life, your who you are, and um, you got to think about what this means. Does this mean that people who become Christians will never have anything in their life harmed? And you got to wonder, is this psalm really true? God will keep your life? Um, Stephen, the first martyr, God will keep your life? Doesn't seem right. Daniel, heading into the lion's den, Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life, Daniel. Okay, interesting. Or Joseph, heading into prison. Or David, on the run in Engedi. Or Paul, enduring how many times 40 lashes less one than how many nights in the deep? God will keep your life. What about these words from the Lord Jesus? Luke 21, verses 16 and following. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. What's wrong with that? What's going on here? Something missing, isn't there? Well, there's a verse right after those words from Jesus in Luke 21 that I'll read. And I'm going to read the whole thing again just so you can see how amazing this is. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. And you've got to think, you know, Jesus, you're not talking sense. What does that mean? Well, I think it means basically what it meant when Jesus said to somebody, you know, don't worry, that boy who died is actually, or that girl who died is not actually dead, she's just sleeping. No, she was dead, you have to understand. But given the fact that Jesus had in mind to resurrect her to new life, her death was no harm to her, really. She was just sleeping. In the larger context of what Jesus planned to do in her life, she was just sleeping. And in the larger context of what God plans to do in your life, not a hair of your head will perish. And that includes Stephen the martyr. And it includes Daniel, even had the Lord not shut the lion's mouths. And it includes David on the run. And it includes Joseph in the prison. And it includes Paul, who after all that suffering, wrote 1 Corinthians 15 about the hope of the resurrection. Not a hair of your head will perish. And I bet you you'll get time after the resurrection to see the hairs and to check, right? You'll be able to tell. God was faithful to this. Not a hair of my head perished. Yahweh will keep you from all evil, but he doesn't promise to give you a convenient life. That's the point. He promises that in the long run, including the resurrection, you'll be safe. Yahweh will keep your soul. He'll keep your life. then I want to show you how long the protection is going to last. Verse 8. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. There are. um, It's common to say that the Old Testament doesn't have much of a resurrection hope in it, that the hope of God's people in the Old Testament was mostly about this world, about inheriting a land and having offspring and crops and harvests and early rain and latter rain and it's only in the new testament that we're redirected away from those things towards eternity well i mean i just i just wonder because it says right here from this time forth and forevermore and that sounds like eternity doesn't it i think this is really god telling his people you your life is eternally secure And the pilgrimage you're making is not merely to the earthly city of Zion, as ancient Israelites made their pilgrimage on the feast days, but to what that earthly city of Zion represented. Zion, the mother which is above, as Paul says in Galatians. Zion in Hebrews 13, the heavenly city where we're greeted by myriads of angels and the spiritual blessings that are fulfillment of old covenant promises and pictures. That's your destination. And the roadside assistance that God promises you is not just while you're a young Christian. It's not just in your current phase of life. It's not just in some past phase of life in case you're feeling kind of deserted these days. Your present situation is included and every situation until the day that you see Christ face to face and eat and drink with him the wine that he's been waiting to share with you in the kingdom. From this time forth and forevermore. I wonder if I can convince you with a few testimonies from Scripture. Here's Jacob, who at the end of his life said this, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Now, he lived pretty old. He was 100 and something, 120, if I'm getting that right. And so that's really something for someone to be able to say that. All my life long till this day. And then we read from 2 Timothy 4, where Paul, at the end of his long and hard Christian life, had this to say in verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. The Lord will keep you from all evil, Psalm 121 said. "And Bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom from this time forth and forevermore. It would be an interesting thing to do to go through 2 Timothy and notice all the harms that came against Paul fellow Christians deserting him, people betraying him, people opposing his message, false teachers leading his congregation off into myths. He's being poured out as a drink offering, which is his way of describing his life as a sacrifice, as a something he's giving up for the Lord because of the suffering that he's enduring. And still all this way, the Lord has been his keeper, the Lord has been his shade on his right hand, The sun has not struck Paul by day, nor the moon by night. Because it says here, verse 17, that even though everyone else deserted him, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So those are a couple testimonies. I mean, Jacob in the Old Testament, Paul in the New. Psalm 121 isn't just a, a nice image of a bunch of mountains. It is that, at least. It is beautiful. And the beauty, it matters. And it's important but it's also a realistic look at the fact that it is not easy to get to heaven, and yet with God's help, all those who put their trust in him will make it. Because God not only gives to us the grace of forgiveness, and not only the grace of sanctification, but also the grace of perseverance to all who call on him in faith. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would merciful to us, see us in our many needs, consider the weakness of our human flesh, consider the corruption of our sinful heart, consider, Lord, the troubles and trials that are around us, the distractions that plague us, consider, Lord, the fact that there are enemies who are not merely obstacles but positive adversaries wish to keep us from reaching our appointed destination. And Lord, consider the fact that we're tired, and we want nothing more than to enjoy the strength of resurrection life when knees will no longer need to be strengthened and arms no longer need to be refreshed. Uh, We ask, Lord, for all who are weary Here among us, that you would refresh and strengthen us to glorify you in a confident walking towards heaven. And Lord, for all who are not yet set out on this road, a road so cross-shaped and yet so resurrection glorious, we ask, Lord, that you would give grace to draw us to yourself. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.